Thank you, Robin, for the special music. Truthfully, I don't know how to introduce this sermon. It's an odd passage to preach. It's one that we would probably skip if I were just selecting text. But one of the benefits of the consistent expositional preaching that we practice here at Monument Heights is you can't skip text. You're, you're stuck with the next text and you get to hear the full counsel of God's word. And so I wrestled this week with how do I present a text that's primarily about the qualifications for pastors to a congregation. It seems like someone else might should be presenting that text to me instead of the way we're doing it this morning. But what I would like to do is I would like to begin with an exhortation, an encouragement, a challenge to us here. I want you to pay close attention to this passage. We're talking so much about renewal and revitalization and what happens next here at Monument Heights. And I think this text tells us a whole lot of what it means to structure and order a church rightly. See, in order for renewal to happen, we must put the church in order. And by that, I mean ensuring that the church is structured around biblical principles and not just our traditions, not just our thoughts, not just our feelings about how we think it should be, not from the business sector, but I think we need to return to what Scripture teaches about God's design for His church. And of course, we've talked about this in Acts 6 several months ago, but now we'll look look specifically at what Paul was writing to this young pastor in Crete named Titus. So we have a lot to look at here, and I believe some things to consider based on what we see in this passage. So we're in Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, and you can go ahead and join me there. It would be most helpful if you could join me there. Titus chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 5. Titus 1, verse 5, and let's go ahead and just start with verse 5 and work our way through the passage. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So notice Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, this little island, for two reasons. Two reasons, two tasks, Titus. So that you might put what remained into order and you might appoint elders in every town or every city. Now, it seems to me that we have a tendency to think however our church is structured is the right way, or however the church was structured when we were growing up is the right way. But that's not necessarily so. Just think about all the different structures of church that exist. Even within Baptist life, there are a multitude of structures So we can't simply say, well, the way I've done it or experienced it is always right. Again, this is motivation and reason for us to return to Scripture to see what God's design is for the church. And the structure of the church is important. It's significant for the congregation. It's significant not just for the leadership, but it actually fosters your spiritual growth when the church is structured properly. A church that's structured properly helps the congregation grow in healthy spirituality, in healthy Christian formation. 
And we'll see more of that next week, and we'll see a little bit of that at the end of the passage this morning. But for now, let me just say that a church structured according to the guidelines in Scripture is a benefit to the entire congregation and a strong witness to the gospel. So the first task for Titus is to put what remained into order. To, to tie up the loose ends and to structure the church properly. The second task that Paul gives him, which is really part of the putting what is left in order. It's really just a continuation of that. The second task is to appoint elders in every town. Now we have to talk about this word elders because it can trip us up. We're not just talking about senior adults or something like that. The Bible uses this term elder for the office of pastor. In fact, the Bible uses three terms interchangeably. It uses the word pastor or shepherd, which are the same word. The word pastor just means shepherd. Like if you've heard of a pastoral scene where it's a landscape, that's where we get that from. It's a shepherding sense. So shepherd, pastor, that's one word. The next word would be elder, and then the third word would be overseer, or classically translated in the King James Version, bishop. So we have those three terms, pastor, elder, and overseer, and they're used interchangeably. We can see some of that in this passage, in fact. Notice Paul here in verse 5 says to appoint elders. But then in verse 7, he says for or because an overseer. Here, using the word overseer synonymously with elder. So you can see how this is the same office. There are two places in the New Testament where all three terms, pastor, elder, and overseer, are used together. Let me just show you one from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is Peter writing to the church. So he says, so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he uses the verb form here of pastor, shepherd, or pastor, the flock of God that is among you. And then the verb again, overseeing, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So we've got these three terms, pastor, elder, and overseer, and they all mean the same thing, and they're used in Scripture interchangeably. So whenever you see a list of qualifications for elders or overseers, just know we're talking about the office of pastor. Notice also that here in Titus verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the instruction is appoint elders, not just one elder, not, not an elder for every town, not a bishop for every town, not a bishop for every church or an elder for every church, but elders is plural. And if you were paying attention to the passages I just noted, you also saw that in almost every instance, the passage said elders in plural. First Peter said, I exhort the elders among you. So the pattern we see throughout the New Testament is not one pastor ruling or leading a single congregation, but we see a group of pastors or group of elders, what we sometimes call a plurality of elders, leading an entire congregation. 
Ben Merkel, a New Testament professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, states pretty strongly in one of his books, he says, there is no example in the New Testament of one elder one elder or pastor leading a congregation as the sole or primary leader. So the pattern we see in Scripture consistently is a group of pastors, a plurality of elders leading the church. We see this, for example, in Acts 14.23, where Paul and Barnabas make it a priority to appoint multiple elders in a church. Or in Acts 20.28, where Paul exhorts the elders, plural, to shepherd, pastor, the church in Ephesus, singular, church in Ephesus. Or James 5.14, which tells us, if any is sick among you, let them call the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to pray for them. So thinking about just those few verses and Paul's advice to Timothy or Titus here, we can conclude that one of the first tasks for a healthy church One of the first tasks for a healthy church renewal is looking at the leadership structure. One of the first tasks for a healthy church is to appoint elders in the proper way of Scripture. Now, the question is, what qualifies one to be an elder? Which is what Paul was concerned with answering in our passage this morning. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, and I want you to hang on to that because we're going to come back to that word. It's the driving word for this passage. The husband of one wife, which people have misinterpreted and done all sorts of weird things with, but it just simply means in that culture, the man is faithful to his wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of This is one of those great words that I don't really know why we still use it in modern English. Debauchery. If somebody knows what it means outside of having an English degree, then we probably should have had an award for you this morning, like a candy bar or something. But uh, debauchery, which it really has this sense of recklessness, like living unwisely, something like that. And then insubordination. So they're not open to the charge of recklessness, uh, ness, and they're not open to the charge of insubordination would be like rebellion. So really what he's saying is that they're considered wise. They live with careful measure, what the Bible sometimes calls sober-minded, which has a lot more to do than just alcohol. It has to do with being awake and being alert and, and, and being paying attention to the world around you and being sensitive to where God is at work in the world. Now, I've already told you this word, above reproach, which is a single word in the Greek text, above reproach is the main word here. All of the following characteristics are just descriptions of this word, above reproach. And this is true also in the qualifications in 1 Timothy as well, which are very similar. And we see this word again down in verse 7 when Paul says, for an overseer must be above reproach. So the question is, what does it mean to be above reproach? Well, the word means something like blameless. And of course, the essential background for this is the Old Testament. Whenever you brought a sacrifice, it had to be spotless. It had to be blameless. 
I think a helpful analogy actually comes to us from outside the Bible, from the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, who to be clear was no Christian and likely persecuted Christians. Nevertheless, I like what he says in um, his famous book, Meditations. He writes, no matter what anyone says or does, my task is to be good, like gold or emerald or purple, repeating to itself, no matter what anyone says or does, my task is to be emerald, my color undiminished. So be emerald in the sense of being unstained, being pure, being clear. That's what it means to be above reproach. See, emeralds are rare gems, a lot like diamonds. And I say this with much trepidation as a leader in a church, as a pastor. But leaders in the church are called to this standard. And by the way, this isn't necessarily a higher standard than every Christian is called to in the New Testament. It's just it's very explicitly stated in these qualifications for elders that they must be above reproach. And yet again and again and again throughout the New Testament, every believer, regardless of whether they're an elder or a deacon in the congregation, is that they too are called to be blameless. And the process of Christian maturity is that you would be blameless and mature and holy when Christ returns. You read that all the time in the New Testament. Now, Paul, though, is talking specifically about how do we identify elders. And he's explaining why being above reproach is necessary in verse 7. For, or because, an overseer, again, synonymous with elder, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So, As an overseer, they are representing God to the people of God. Think about this. As a minister and a a, a person who communicates the word of God to the people of God, it is necessary that that person be above reproach, that charges aren't easily leveled against their character. Now, what does it mean to be above reproach? The rest of verse 7 tells us, first it gives us negative traits, things that would disqualify you, things that mean you're not above reproach. It gives us five of those, and then in verse 8 we get six positive traits. So we'll just kind of go through these quickly. So second half of verse 7 there, he must not be arrogant, uh, which really has a sense of being stubborn as well, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. So, so there's our negative traits. And most of these words are self-explanatory. Now what I would hope that we could do is resist turning, in the, turning these into some sort of rules. Because I think the best way to understand any list of character traits in Scripture is not the rule-following way. So, for example, you've probably seen this done with 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, and all of those things. And probably at some point you've heard someone tell you, what you should do is you should work on being kind this day, you should work on being patient this day, and then you'll, you'll suddenly become loving. Or sometimes they do it with the fruits on time. In the classical world, a virtue was something that characterized the being of a person more than just the doing. So virtue concerns character 
not mere action. Think about it this way. Am I an honest person because I told the truth one time? No, not necessarily. I might be the greatest liar of all time and yet still tell the truth. I'm only an honest person if there's a consistent pattern in my life of telling the truth. Now, if I lie one time, I might still be an honest person. You see, see what I mean? That It's a matter of a pattern. Now, of course, you don't want to lie. That would mean you were dishonest that time. But the issue here is character. C.S. Lewis put it this way. We might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, but whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. In other words, what God wants is not you to follow a list of rules. He wants you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That your character would become like his. Not that you would follow a list of rules. So even here as we're talking about elders and what qualifies a person to be appointed to this position to lead the church and to instruct from God's word. We have these positive and negative traits and they should be viewed as general statements on a person's character. Which also leaves room for grace, doesn't it? Because no human, no human, pastor or not, will be above reproach 100% of the time. That's just true. We all know it. There's no possible way that I could stand up here and honestly say that I live beyond reproach always and every day. But we're looking at character patterns. And that, by the way, is possible through the Spirit. So that might be a question on your mind. How in the world do you become this sort of person? Well, again, I've explained it doesn't come through following rules. But what we see in the New Testament is the activity of the Spirit is what changes us from the inside out. Now, how do we experience the activity of the Spirit? We experience the activity of the Spirit by being in union with Christ. So John's gospel has this favorite word, abide. If you've ever read John's gospel, you'll see it again and again. Abide in me. Be like a branch abiding in the, the or be like a vine uh, abiding in the tree, right? And again and again, the idea is to be with Jesus, to, to abide and commune with him. And so the way for transformation is not saying, I'm going to try really hard to be a good person. The way for transformation to happen in the Christian life is to abide and remain in Jesus so that his spirit transforms us from the inside out. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, I say to you, uh, walk by the Spirit, or live by the Spirit, and then you will not gratify the lust of the flesh. He doesn't say, stop gratifying the lust of the flesh, and then you can walk by the Spirit. He says, walk by the Spirit. Focus on that aspect. Focus on surrendering your will to God, surrendering yourself to God, giving yourself to God each day, and spending time in communion with Christ, and then you will find that your desires are lessened, and that your heart is being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. So a leader should not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. A red flag in any of those areas would need to be examined closely before appointing someone to leadership in a congregation. Now, on to the positives. Verse 8. 
but they should be hospitable, which is important because these churches often would have met in homes. They didn't have buildings and facilities like we do, so it's important that they have this understanding of being hospitable and welcoming of others. The word hospitable is actually a really interesting word because it carries almost embedded in it this sense of caring for outcasts and strangers, something that we see again and again to be of great concern in the Old Testament. So they must be hospitable, a lover of what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So, so here, these ought to be the general pattern of pastors. Then we come to the final verse, the final thing Paul wants to say. If you're looking for an elder, Timothy, here's the other thing. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? Why is it necessary to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine... And also to rebuke those who contradict it. Two things. To give instruction in sound doctrine. And to rebuke those who contradict it. Now this series, the five week series we're doing in Titus. Is simply titled Sound Doctrine. And it comes from this verse and a, a couple of others in Titus. Where Paul uses this phrase sound or healthy doctrine to describe what is necessary for the church. And it's Paul's dominant concern in this letter to Titus. The primary task of ordering the church revolves around a commitment to sound teaching, to sound doctrine, to delivering the faith that was handed down to us from the apostles. In this last verse, we see that a commitment to Scripture And the faith handed down to us is a qualification for leadership in the church. Reverence for and commitment to scripture and the Christian faith are hallmarks of qualified leaders. Notice once more this twofold reason. To instruct in sound doctrine. This tells us why it's important. To instruct in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. So what Paul's saying is pastors need a thorough grasp of Scripture and sound doctrine. They need to be conversant in it. The way I think about this is a pastor is simply a resident theologian or a theologian in residence. We tend to think theologians are in our seminaries, and certainly they are. But a pastor needs to not just be good with people. That's important, hospitable, right? Loving, kind, all those things. He must represent Christ well. But he also must be able to handle the Word of God and sound doctrine in order to protect the church. And I, I, by the way, keep saying he because that's the pronoun here. I should say something about this. Our church has a divided view on this, I think. Um, I don't actually think Scripture completely delimits women from having this role, okay? So that may shock some of you, but the search committee knows it. I've talked about it. Um, You can convince me and we can argue back and forth. But nowhere in Scripture does Paul actually prohibit a woman from holding that office. There are other texts you can go to to twist it. But I do need to be clear on that just so you don't misunderstand me this morning. Didn't intend on saying that, so um, it's not one of those things you usually want to say off off the cuff. But 
um, it's out there now, and it's uh, probably a, a horrid mistake I've just made. Not, not really. Um, I do want to be clear with you on that, and I, I think there's tremendous precedent in Scripture for God's use of women. Um, and I'm not saying that over and against Scripture. You know my love for Scripture. If I thought Scripture said otherwise, I would stand up here and say the very hard thing to you. Uh, but I think actually Scripture presents a strong case for women in leadership. Of course, that's not where we're going today, so I don't have to touch it any further. And if you have questions, Pastor Rupert, Pastor Chris are available <laughs> through the week. <coughs> they are pastors after all. <laughs> all right, so... The reason for all of this, so that a pastor has a thorough grasp of Scripture and sound doctrine, is precisely the example I just gave you, right? Well, what about that question? Well, what about a church that goes off the rails saying, well, culture is pressing us so hard here, and we feel like we want to do this, and, and, and the church doesn't know what to do because the pastor doesn't have a strong grasp of what Scripture teaches? It's, it's essential, is it not? So that's, that's one example, right, that, that just kind of popped up in there. And this is necessary so the church can be protected. Now, this doesn't at all mean that a seminary degree is necessary or, or even necessarily any formal training. Though those things are great gifts. But it does mean that the individual has put in the time and the effort to grasp Scripture and sound doctrine. And this is likely done under the oversight of the other elders. We see this in historic Baptist confessions when they're appointing a new elder. It's all under the congregation's nomination, but then it's all under the guise or, or the, the leadership, the direction of the, yes, elders. Our historic Baptist confessions talk about elders, plural, in the church as well. Further, this doesn't mean all elders have to preach. Generally, one is going to do the primary bulk of preaching and teaching. Even Paul seems to recognize that when he says that those elders who are, uh, are preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. Well, why does he say that? Because they're doing a task that not all of them are doing. So teaching comes in many forms. And, and by the way, in 1 Timothy, the qualifications include the ability to teach. So teaching comes in many forms. It can be in small groups, counseling situations, Bible studies. But the elder, the pastor, needs a grasp of God's word and sound doctrine in order to do any of those things faithfully. Now, why does this matter? Why am I talking to you about elders? And how is this going to benefit you today on Sunday? What are the benefits for this type of leadership? Well, first, having a plurality of qualified pastors ensures the health of the church. The first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, W.B. Johnson, wrote this, A plurality of elders is of great importance for mutual counsel and aid. So one, you're not just relying on one fallible human being, but you have multiple people for counsel and aid. That the government and the edification, which just means building up the growth of the flock, may be promoted in the best manner. See, there's a reason one of the primary tasks Paul gives to Titus in Crete is appointing qualified elders. Healthy leaders are necessary for healthy churches. Now let me return to this idea of multiple elders, both paid and lay, by the way. It's possible to not be a paid elder in a church. I know this church, 
Monument Heights now. I know this church, despite having a pastoral staff with multiple pastors, still tends to think of one pastor. I know that because sometimes I get called the pastor and it actually makes me feel a little weird. I realize I'm, I'm the lead pastor. I realize I'm the teaching pastor, the primary teacher. I'm comfortable with that. But I'm afraid we can't continue thinking in terms of one pastor in our leadership structure if we really want to be faithful to Scripture. I think in order to be faithful to Scripture, we really have to restore the office of pastor in the biblical sense and the way Baptists have historically understood it. Furthermore, having multiple pastors ensures a complete spectrum of gifts in your leadership. You've already seen this in the last eight months. Rupert is a magic worker with administration. I'm awful at it. Awful. If anybody's sitting at a committee meeting with me, they've already heard me say it. I can give you like 30 ideas that I think are awesome and good ideas, but I have no clue how to execute them and get them off the ground. And they'll sit in my mind or on my desk for weeks because I don't actually know the steps to make it happen. I, I think I can teach okay, right? I, I do that all right. But, but then there are other areas like this administration stuff that I just, I can't hardly touch. And so it is with all the gifts in a church. Diversity of gifts best serve the church. And when you have leaders with a diversity of gifts, you have a healthier church structure. One that can handle the everyday workings of the church. Number two, there's accountability. How many examples of authoritarian pastors have we heard who had all the authority at the top and then they let us down because they were, un, they, they were unaccountable to nobody? How many pastors fall into some scandal? All of this plurality is not a grasp for more power. It is in order to bring more of the idea of being a shepherd under Christ into the church. Another reason, a plurality of voices best discerns Scripture together rather than just one voice to which the entire congregation is susceptible or in maybe even worse case, the congregation is skeptical. Both of those are, are bad, right? If you're just beholden to one teacher who has no accountability, no person to say, hey, I don't know if you got that quite right or we need to revisit that or relook at that, then, then you're beholden as a congregation to, in this case, everything I would say. And I don't want you to be skeptical of me. I want you to trust me. But at the same time, I want you to go to God's Word and not, not take everything I say as God's Word because it's not. I think it is, but it's not. <laughs> and qualified leaders provide godly protection and oversight for the congregation. The Lord knows how to run His church. We have to trust Him. He gives us this leadership structure so that the church can be protected. And we'll see that very clearly next week. Because we know there are people in the church who seek to harm the church. I don't know that they always do it intentionally. I think sometimes they don't realize they're being used by Satan in this regard. Yeah, I said Satan. I think Satan's real and actually desires to get into the church and destroy the church. And so we have people who do that, whether it's through false teaching or dissension or factionalism or creating disunity. It happens. It happens at our church. Strong and healthy leadership is necessary 
to instruct in the proper path, but also to rebuke and correct when necessary. Let me say a final word about the qualifications here. This list is overwhelming. So if you're not a pastor, you might not fill it. You might say, well, it doesn't really apply to me. But as I've said, I actually think it does. I think this list is consistent with what you'll find everywhere else in Scripture for what it means to mature as a Christian. And I think the expectation for all believers, according to Hebrews 5, is that you would become teachers. So the idea is you would progress and you would never just sit and stagnate. That's a problem. Stagnation is always a bad thing. All sorts of stuff grows when stagnation is present. But even if you don't fill it, I can assure you, I say this with some vulnerability, that I fill it. And as I worked on this passage this week, I feel overwhelmed by this list of qualifications. If I'm being perfectly honest, I feel disqualified. I can never live up to these standards perfectly. While I don't want to exhibit a pattern of being snippy with people, I can't promise you that I won't lose my temper. It does happen. But this list, and I think the significance of this list, points us to a greater shepherd. And it's only through looking to him, and it's only by him, and being united to him, abiding in him, I talked about earlier, that change is possible. See, every single characteristic in this list is perfectly embodied in the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. When he was reviled, he didn't return it. When he was abused, he didn't return that either, but was perfectly above reproach and blameless in every way. And he never failed on any of these points. He was always above reproach and he spoke truth perfectly. And yet he was completely full of grace. That perfect balance that's so hard to achieve. The exhortation Peter gives as he closes his letter in 1 Peter to elders is to shepherd faithfully because the chief shepherd is coming back. So the exhortation to a leader like myself is that we are under shepherds. I am an under pastor. There is a chief shepherd or a chief pastor, and his name is Jesus. And here we are reminded of the gospel of Christ, that he, not us, he embodied righteousness. He is without sin. We're not without sin. He is, and he died, and he rose again, and he is worthy of our worship, and not Any single one of us, whether we're in a pew or up on some sort of platform, not any one of us can say that we are worthy of worship. And together as believers who trust in Him, we're called to emulate Him and be conformed to His pattern and to follow His footsteps. So as one of your leaders here at the church, I urge you to look to Christ with me. I urge you to do what I'm trying to do and look to Him. I will strive. This is a commitment I made to you eight months ago. By God's grace to be faithful and qualified so I do not bring reproach upon Christ or upon His church or upon this local church. But I am fallen and weak and I will fail at times. There is only one who can make me above reproach. There is only one who can make you above reproach, and that is Christ. And the great news of the gospel is that through Christ, 
He has begun a sanctifying, which means being made holy, a sanctifying work in everyone who is united to him. The way Paul puts it in Philippians 1.6 is, He who began a good work in you will complete it. In other words, when all was said and done, and Christ returns, and you are presented before him as the church and as individuals, you know what scripture says? We'll be presented blameless, above reproach before him. Not because you and I are inherently holy, but because Christ has brought us into communion and union with himself. And now his spirit is at work, changing us from the inside out. And that's our only hope. That's the only hope you can have for any qualified leaders in this congregation as well. So we can pray for our leaders, we can pray for each other, but we must, we must, we must keep our eyes on Christ, imitating Him, because He alone embodies the traits in this passage. Pastor Chris is coming to lead us in our pastoral prayer this morning. So he's on his way up now. Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just just thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, we often wonder about the different things that we are to do. And Lord, all we have to do is just look in your word and you tell us. Lord, we like to think of this as our church. But truthfully, Lord, it's your church. And Lord, we may not always make this church exactly what you want it to be. We may have our own agendas, our own ideas. Lord, for that, I ask forgiveness for us. Lord, I ask that you would just help us to truly allow you to shape this church and make this church and mold it into what you want it to be. Lord, I thank you that you have called each of us here to be a part of it. And Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us Jesus to cleanse us and to help us become what you want us to be. Lord, I pray that you would help Monument Heights to become a church and to remain a church that would be faithful to your word that we would encourage one another, that we would love one another, and we would admonish one another. Lord, I thank you for the leadership team that's here. And that includes many people who are not technically on staff, Lord, but are are great encouragers and teachers. And Lord, you just have given us a lot of people to help us hopefully make a difference in this community for your kingdom. Lord, help us to be humble and to realize, apart from you, that we can do nothing. Help us to realize, Lord, that it is only through your righteousness and your holiness 
that we can encourage others. So, Lord, I pray that as we, as a church, strive to become what you want us to be, I pray we would just cast out any of our preconceived ideas or traditions and remain true to Scripture. And, Lord, I pray you would use this church to make genuine disciples and to start a movement in our congregation and our city and even in this world to be genuine followers of Christ. Lord, use us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.